0: Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Politics Podcast. Hello, Professor Herbert. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. I would like to skip first how you would like to uh, introduce and define yourself or the audience for first time listening to you.
1: Well, thank you, Marwa. I'm very, uh, very happy to be invited here. Thank you. Um, so, um, well, I, I'm Herb Shea, I'm a professor at the EPFL in microengineering. I'm basically a physicist turned engineer. Yeah. Um, studied physics and for the last 10 years, I've been really developing soft machines. Our, our goal is on electrically driven soft actuators based on elastomers in order to make wearable haptics or just any type of soft robot that needs high efficiency soft actuators.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I, I think the part that you study physics in your undergrad and undergrad is interesting, uh, we will ask that uh, later. But uh, first of all, I, I'm curious about your childhood. How was your childhood? Because we know childhood affected you as a scientist. Do you have any members being interested in science or technology as a kid?
1: Oh, yes. Um, well, I was very lucky to have very supportive parents who mm. studied non-science, but supported me in, in, in the direction of, of science. Um, I always loved physics, math, and especially programming. So mm. I never did any robotics as a child. And, and, and my experience growing up yeah, was that I knew I wanted to study something applied, electrical engineering or physics or mechanical engineering, ended up doing physics and that uh, then, by lucky circumstances, evolved to my current position.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm curious to ask you how this transition happened, studying so physics and now you're doing applied science as an engineering. Was it easy for you? Because we know there's a uh, discussion about physics and engineering and how, how this two fields can uh, go hands in hand or maybe sometimes there's a, also controversy between both of the field. How was this a transition for you was it easy for you or challenging
1: well it was quite easy because i'm going to give you the very arrogant physicist approach who believe that we can of course do anything um so 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 more more seriously i i, I think it's a question also of interest so my, mm-hmm. my phd was on low temperature superconductivity it yeah. really had it was very interesting but it had little direct practical implication Then my postdoc was on carbon nanotube electronics. That was already much closer to to a device that could be useful. Mm -hmm. And then I worked at Bell Labs for five years on optical MEMS, so optical, small scale optical switches for fiber networks. And that I loved because there we were a team of 50 people but we were working together to make a product. We were competing with startups. It was a super exciting time. And I really liked that feeling that we're people working together from different fields to make a commercial device.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: well, then the whole telecom industry fell apart, and I was fortunate to find this position at EPFL, and there I had a lot of freedom as to what would I explore. And yeah. so there, over time, started discovering that soft materials were really interesting, and I, I steered away from what I was supposed to be doing, which was making uh, small-scale propulsion for satellites, to really now having a team of 20 people making soft actuators.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really wonderful. Yeah. But I'm curious to ask you, since you have this background in physics, when you look to soft robotics field, do you think we understand the physics of uh, the material we're dealing with? To which level do you think physics is really understood in uh, in what we do?
1: I would claim it's actually quite well understood. The mm-hmm. th- th- There's the, the, the materials are pretty well known. I mean, they're, they're, there's some more subtle effect. Well, the the, the key effects have been understood. So there are the brilliant people like Jigang Suo at Harvard who really laid the foundation, for instance, for dielectric elastomer actuators, for how they work. But otherwise, it's basically nonlinear stress strain curves and, and relatively simple systems that we know how to model. I think it's more a design question or application thing that we don't have such a good handle on, Mm-hmm. They're they're brilliant chemists and material scientists who are making better materials for us, but I don't think there's a, a, a fundamental understanding problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what do you think? Maybe the effort we have to do, maybe which is scale of understanding do you think? Since we have been working this micro scale, do you think this is, could be give you a leverage to have understanding for a bigger scale, like continuum scale? Is it something was easier for you to understand? Maybe you think saying this is something make a difference in understanding?
1: I don't think I can claim any specific understanding uh, step up over, over my colleagues. I actually feel rather that the, the people, for instance, in mechanical engineering, material science, understand far better the materials that, than I do and, and, and some of the, the challenges that that are faced the, the, some of the difficulties in m- making soft actuators are that you want many things at once you want a material that's soft and elastic but you also want it to easy to process you want it to have a long lifetime you want it to sustain high electric fields a- and so on and so it's uh, you want it to be tough there are many constraints that should be ideally solved simultaneously and that requires a really good understanding of the material
0: yeah yeah i think that's really a good point i think about how, how, we, this you mentioned very interesting properties, but I think uh, when we look now, we have this kind of trade off. For example, in ionic conductive polymer, you have this trade off between the geometry. If you have a higher thickness, it would be higher forces, and sometimes it would be lower response. So, how do you see these trade offs? Can we come, off, come over these trade offs? Or is it something we have to face uh, in designing material, new material, this kind of trade offs?
1: Well, I, I think trade-offs are a fascinating topic because they're intrinsic to everything we do. You, the, I, I worked for a long time in reliability, and reliability to me was always a big trade-off. You, you're trading mm-hmm. off somewhere performance or cost or ease of manufacturing for reliability, and I think we have just a little bit of a different trade-off in, in, soft, in soft actuators. You're, you're tra- you, you could make a very reliable device or if you sacrifice some strain, you can make a device that, 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 that works very fast if you're willing to perhaps live with a few fewer cycles. So the, where you can gain is with clever design or perhaps clever material engineering, you can, you can probably gain quite a lot. I mean, that, that's what I'm assuming I like this a lot because how much can we gain? Are we talking about percentages? or are we talking about factors of 10 or 100? And, and I think that by choosing the right materials we have enough freedom in design and material choice that there is a factor of 10 or 100 mm-hmm. that we can gain. So if, if I look sorry, to dive into something that I am more specific to what I work on, but we, we, we work on electrostatically actuated devices
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we're limited by permittivity of our elastomer and the breakdown field squared. And so if you can get a five times increase in breakdown field, that's 25 times higher energy density. That, you know, that, that's more than order of magnitude and that can be done by careful choice of materials.
0: Yeah, I think uh, uh, this is really also a very, very good point uh, about how we can select the material. It is a question we have all the time, if we have to maybe to use what we have in terms of the material properties and considering maybe the morphology or the shape, or we have to design new material with new functionalities. So when you consider selecting the new material, what kind of properties maybe significant parameters you look for, may be critical for you? either you have to optimize it, or you have to design completely new material. How do you figure out that?
1: Well, completely new, I would have a hard time with. Um, we, we, we uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make a little intro before I get to answering your question, Marwa. Um, the We use commercial materials because we're not competent to, to really design materials, and so we work with people who do make materials, like Professor Anaskov at DTU. Um, um, yeah. but the knowing what the materials, properties you are, you want is, is a bit of a difficult wish list. So, for instance, I make electrostatic actuators, so I care about the Young's modulus, the permittivity, the breakdown voltage. But I also care about Mellon's effect. I care about aging. I care about solvent compatibility. I, I need to be able to print these or cast them. I, and so um, I, I care about adhesion to it. Um, So so there's a lot of parameters that go around it, and there there are few groups in the world who can actually design a material and control all those parameters at once. So I know what my wish list is, but I also, I think, have to accept that I'm not going to get a huge factor of, there's going to be trade-offs. If I want to increase, say, relative permittivity, I'm going to have to accept some decrease in breakdown voltage or some increase in stiffness. And then it's up to me to say, well, maybe my, my, my material scientists and chemist friends can give me a factor of two over there. But to use that, I'm going to have to change my design somewhat to accommodate those materials.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So do you think maybe the, maybe the answer for this question, do you think it lies in, in modeling or understanding how this material behaves so that we can maybe, I don't know, do you think if you have to accept this kind of trade-off, do you think maybe in the, in the coming years, we can have all this feature all, uh, at the same kind of level we aspire to have, as you mentioned.
1: Oh, I, I like that vision. I mean, so, so you're taking a nice fundamental view of things saying if we start sort of with molecular simulations or, or really looking at the atomic level, how could we engineer a material or what are the real limits on the material as opposed to, 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 to the limits we have today? So that's a really interesting question. Um, but I think it's, it's it's also one that that sort of requires a longer term outlook to to see how far can we push, for instance, elastomer performance, um, and 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 and. But that's a very challenging task you're laying out.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's really really challenging. Yeah, but maybe there was a question about um, how how you would define soft systems and soft machines, and so you. Yeah, you you focus on designing electrostatic dielectric customers. So how do you see the soft robot? Do you think we have to focus on passive material and active at the same time or only active material or smart material? So how is the definition for soft system for you, soft robots, looks like for you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's a hard question. So I think there's two aspects to a soft system. One is the sort of the softness part of it, essentially, what is the mechanical spring constant of that system? If I push on it, how much does it deform? And, and the other is, how far can I stretch it before it breaks? And so mm-hmm. sort of coming back to the, the, the first part, the spring constants or active versus passive, I mean I am gonna claim that I'm a soft machine. I I have I have hard teeth and, and a rigid skeleton, but mm-hmm. but mammals are, are basically soft because a part of our body is actually has a low Young's modulus, but also if you push on me, I can deform my body so that I, I essentially absorb that and I effectively can have a soft, a low spring constant. Um, and, that, and so there you could actually then have completely hard systems that, that feel soft because of, of excellent control. Where you can't push the hard systems too much, even with control, is how much can you actually deform them? How much can you stretch them? And there, I think, is when, when we think about soft robots, that's what we really think about is something that you can deform. So like an octopus that can squeeze through a tiny little hole or, or, or even a mouse that's able to, to squeeze itself through tiny little passages Um, Or or, or a snake that can swallow prey that's ridiculously large compared to the snake size. That's where we get to a soft system. And I think we're going to have to deal with the same way that in our body we have hard and soft parts and stretchable and less stretchable parts. I I think a a very effective soft robot is going to have to combine uh, more rigid and less rigid pieces. And some parts will have trivial control and some parts will have more sophisticated control.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe, of first to ask you a bit, you mentioned very uh, interesting example. When we look to the nature, why do you think maybe we still like maybe replicating what we have, for example, octopus, that so you can change the shape and confine the places. What do you think me the missing pieces here? Do you think it's about material, developing material, or maybe structure or morphologically? How do you see this missing pieces that replicating what the nature already have figured out already in, in the example you mentioned? What do you think the missing piece we have or we are in the right direction, how do you see this kind of analogy we have in the field?
1: Well I think one thing, well there's several there's, there's, there's several parts to that, one is do we actually want it? Do, what, if we could make an octopus tentacle, apart from being super cool and amazing, would we, who wants one? What, what would we do with it? And then there's a more direct answer to your question is what are we missing so I, I love to start my talks with this there's this picture of some biologists who did a study on if octopuses have a preferred tentacle so they basically threw Rubik's cubes into an aquarium with octopuses and they looked at which tentacle they used to pick up the Rubik's cube to figure out we're, we're right or left-handed typically does an octopus have a preferred tentacle mm-hmm. and that leads to a picture of an octopus holding a Rubik's cube and so I'll try and answer your question with you know can can an octo what what would it take to make an artificial tentacle or two that could solve a Rubik's cube? It, it would take a lot of things that we don't really master right now. We'd have to have amazing distributed sensing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have to have distributed actuation with with extremely fine dexterity, but also enough force to actually twist the Rubik's cube. You would have to have soft energy storage. You'd have to have some distributed computation. You probably want some computation locally at, 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 at the tentacle tips and maybe some more central control further up. And, and so each little piece we, we have steps to, and then there's a, a huge integration challenge. How do you bring all this together is, is something that's quite difficult. The whole system engineering of things, as opposed to making individual sensors or individual actuators is, is very challenging. And I think it, it'll happen more when we can define a real application where there's a, a, a significant benefit to doing this because of the enormous effort it requires.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. That's a good, good point, yeah. So maybe, Chris Q, do you remember what is the first system, soft system you built in? What's the feeling or maybe kind of question come to your mind and still you didn't have answers for them? Do you have any kind of this, this kind of memory about the first soft system you built?
1: Well, it was not so long ago. I mean, I, I, I only built the soft systems when I arrived at DPFL, so, so, uh, mm. so, so I was already 35 years old. Um, it was it a was dielectric elastomer actuator, and um, it was, really was a simple system with just electrodes on both sides of an elastomer. And you put a voltage on, you see this thing moving, and it just feels so unintuitive that you can put a voltage on and your system deforms by, by 30 or 40%. And then you start wondering, well, what's the limit? How, how far can I go? Um, I, I'm not used to objects deforming, I'm used to motors turning, um, I'm used to you know, inflating a balloon, but then I had a compressor here, it looked a little bit more magic that you, you put this voltage on and, and you're able to put a t- change the, the frequency and the, 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 the circle gets bigger and smaller. Uh, so there was this for one level, this, this amazing thing, well, you, know, you, can, the, you have this hard strain. And then the next question was, well, this is awesome, but what, what can I do with this? Um, how do we use soft systems other than having a fantastic time in the lab, there's so many other good solutions out there that, that, that we, I, I feel that we really have to find applications for soft systems where the softness is exploited and not try and replace more conventional actuators. And so that was a lot of the, the work that followed from that was saying, OK, well, you know, where, where do we need things to be soft, like a tunable lens or, or something that matches with human tissue, and, and, and try and put the, the effort there to try and exploit the softness.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm curious as Q because I think maybe that's maybe uh, like ag- argument or maybe um, I don't know maybe how to call it, but for example, when we look to dielectric um, elastomer, what could be the challenges still we have uh, and maybe a kind of energy applied. And also on the other side, when we look to ionic conductive polymer, for example, mm-hmm. it has advantages, but still people like have a desperation. It, it can't work for real application because of that low forces produced. So how do you see the comparison between the electric cluster and ionic one? Do you think we can merge this feature so that we can have this low current apply low current, for example, and high forces? How do you see this kind of the two parts can can be merged and when new material like I don't know have you have to kind of this sort?
1: Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. So, so the, the, we're lucky in this world to have dozens and dozens of very nice technologies for soft actuation. You you focused on two electrical ones, and I, and I, I agree that I, I personally think electrical actuation is, is, is far preferable to pneumatics, but people use pneumatic actuation because they, they get fantastic force densities and and, and and relatively easy design out of them. So we shouldn't rule out pneumatics either for, for soft robots. Um, how to use, Each each of these technologies, so you mentioned ionic versus DA, for instance, uh, they always get split in conferences between basically the low voltage people and the high voltage people. Um, I think it depends really on on, on the need. And it's it's very application specific. What power Mm -hmm.
0: density do you need?
1: What speed do you need? What strain do you need? Does it have to be fit into clothing? Is it going to be in a dry environment? what's 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 the lifetime, what's the cost you can tolerate. So I, I, I really don't think it's 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 one or the other. I think that there's certainly trends of, of free for instance, for ionic devices, of people having made a lot of progress in making sure they they they, they can be they can use for instance ionic liquids and so don't have to work in in, in liquid anymore or for DEAs, there's been a lot of progress in, in, in getting the voltages down by with better materials or thinner thinner films and and, and progress in the fabrication. Um, uh, there's been a lot of exciting work recently um, in, in sort of hazel-type devices and zipping, zipping, zipping concepts. So there's there's a lot of parallel work, and I don't necessarily see a convergence of them just because people will want to sell them and they don't want to have to combine multiple technologies in in a device. I think it's going to be easier to to say it's only ionic or only electrostatic um, mm. if for 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 devices that that would be sold.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you, what could be maybe the area or direction of research? It's very promising, but maybe as a community, we still disagree or doesn't get much attention. Do you have kind of maybe something we think is very promising, but it's still, we, we don't we don't agree, or maybe we don't have much attention, We don't give much attention to it?
1: Well, my, my, my reply is, of course, very biased to you of talking about my work. Um, I, I think haptics is a very interesting field, or haptic and virtual reality, and they're The reason they don't get much attention, well, they get lots of attention, but it's not sure how long the attention lasts is -hmm. because we can't quite tell is this just the bubble and in 10 years, it's going to be gone uh, or is this the future? Um, And so I think that how we can interact with the body using a sense of touch is, is very promising but not yet fully explored aspect of soft robotics because we have these soft robots so they, they naturally fit with the human body, right? They're safe, they can, they, 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 they and how do we use our sense of touch? We use our sense of touch all the time for, 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 for interacting with things, like if you hold a mouse, well, it, it matters a lot what the mouse feels like. If you touch a keyboard, people care deeply about their, their, their what their, about their keyboard, the same for, for furniture. Or, or And so if we want to have that in a virtual world, then you need some means of communicating also a rich sense of touch. Um, to people for, for virtual objects and and there i think there's a big role to be played by soft robotics but it's not so clear if that whole virtual reality or augmented reality field will ever really take off
0: mm-hmm. now what could be maybe maybe if you're still listening you think something still be, be a hot topic maybe or still need exploration? if you can give a concrete example
1: well i think what difficult there is not necessarily well, the actuator is very difficult but i think what's challenging is the link between human perception and actuation. So when, when we start, first started doing haptics, it was part of a European project. And, and we were basically hired by our partners to, to essentially make devices. And so we said, OK, well, you know, what force do you need? What displacement do you need? What frequency do you need? We'll get to work. And they said, well, it's not quite that simple um, because we can't really tell you how much force you need or what displacement you need because it depends on essentially if you're pushing on something hard or soft. It depends on if the person is trained or not trained. It depends on if the person is older or younger or, or, or what his work experience is. So and then we realized it was actually even worse than that, that when you're trying to do virtual reality tests, well, we're, we're, we're very, very visually dominated. If, you, if, if we see in our virtual reality headset that something is soft cotton, we expect it to feel like soft cotton. And it doesn't take much to trick you. And so I, I, what, we've, I mean, what I find very interesting is, 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 is what is needed to make a convincing haptic illusion, knowing that you're wearing a headset or knowing that you're not wearing a headset. So if we try to make a glove for the hand that replicates the, the thousands of, of nerve, that, that stimulates the thousands of nerve endings we have in our finger, it's an impossible task. But you, you don't need to do that. Um, you, you need Same as like we, we, we see a, a 2D flat TV and we're quite happy to believe that there's depth in there, even though it's a 2D TV, the same way you, 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 you can have very few actuators on your fingers. And if you see a virtual reality scene, you're very convinced that you're actually touching the fur on a on, 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 on dog, for instance. Yeah. And so the, the, the tricky part is then how do you connect those two? And it's not an engineering job. It's not a physicist job. It's not a psychologist. It's not a physiologist job. Everybody has to somehow come together to, 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 from both sides to figure out how to do this effectively and convincingly.
0: Yeah, that's really excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I think here also question about uh, the design itself. I think it's about the ma- design the material. And I, one of the question is we have the podcast uh, how we can um, exploit this nonlinearity in the material. And I think Professor George Whiteside mentioned that, for example, the buckling example and how nonlinearity can bring opportunities. So maybe the question here. If we wanted to design something which has interesting information or feature, for example, how you can access this beneficial uh, non in geometry or the material itself? How do you see this kind of approaches to embrace this non-linearities in the material to get something interesting?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point. The, 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 those two nonlinearities make things really interesting, materials nonlinearities and the geometrical nonlinearities. They, they allow us to exploit instabilities and, and, and therefore have bistable or multistable systems that, that would be really tricky to make otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the actuators, the the actuators, they only actually work in any large strain method be, be measure because the materials are intrinsically uh, nonlinear in their stress strain curves. And so I think that's, that's pretty well understood, how to use snap-through instability and, 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 and avoid uh, electromechanical pull-in instabilities using material linearities. Perhaps less explored, but very interesting, as you're pointing out, is the, the buckling behavior and bistable behavior you can get that way, that I, there, there are quite a few groups who are actively exploiting that or exploring that scheme, coupling soft materials that can buckle into multiple states and then different actuation mechanisms, electromagnetic, uh, thermal, light actuated, in order to to get the transition. That's a very promising area indeed.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So maybe for the scaling, I think that's something interesting about, uh, when you mention about non linearities do you think there's a kind of maybe optimum material you aspire to have when you think with yourself, I I just need this material that can enhance or maybe help me to access non linearities and do you think it's challenging because you have been working different scale if you can tell us what is the challenge when we go to micro and macro scale for example or micro scale in that case what's really challenging for you in designing process for the material
1: so the the, the scaling uh, this is a very interesting question the scaling the scalings for the for the mechanics and the scaling then for the actuation Mm-hmm. And they, they, they scale quite differently and, and then indeed you probably have different solutions that are more appropriate for different size scales. So if I'd if I, if I look at the mechanics, well we probably have a resonant frequency that scales as one over length or a stiffness that also scales as, uh, as a stiffness that scales as, as length. Um, you could imagine um, However, that the actuation mechanism, say electrostatics, that principle scales as electric field squared, so it's scale invariant. Whereas electromagnetic actuation, that that scales pretty terribly, sort of as as, as length of the fifth or so. So as, as you get very small, it costs you. It's very energy inefficient unless you embed a magnet in the system, and then you you, you start to scale differently. So people are clever at playing with tricks. Um, but then, if I so the mechanical scaling you're asking about, if I get to to micron scale i'm more worried I must say about the processing challenges we have than about uh, I think true scaling difficulties uh, just because the I, I guess we somehow take the scaling into account automatically when we do do a design and you, you, you calculate the bending stiffness of the beam or calculate uh, the 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 energy the how much you can bend. And perhaps we're a bit too close-minded. We, we tend to think of, you know, we have these materials and this is the performance we can get or we have these materials and are because we want to get a certain performance, I need to do a certain thickness and we're not quite as ambitious as you as thinking about, well, we need a different material um, mm-hmm. if we can't find it in a catalogue. Um, yeah. So coming back to scaling We we we, we're very interested in scaling. My background is MEMS, and so I I like to make arrays of small devices. I think there's a lot to be done with soft materials on a small scale with the right type of actuation. Um, But I think trying to do the design and change the materials at the same time is too tricky. Uh, The we we should focus on. uh, It's easier for a group to focus on either the materials or the design. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you about the misconception. Do you have any, uh, like, uh, we have witnessed any misconception about robotics, maybe in the field or outside the field? Or maybe something is concerning, do you think, uh, in the field?
1: Well, I think there's perhaps a bit of a misconception about what smart materials are and, and how intelligent small systems can be, that that we, we people in the field like to use the word smart materials, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's a bit overused, and so a lot of our so-called smart materials are extremely dumb and actually inert. And to make a smart system, we really need a feedback loop between sensing, Mm -hmm. control, and actuation. And a lot of our so-called soft robots are not robots. Our soft robots are actually soft machines, which are externally controlled. And we happily ignore the fact that there is a big pump or a big high-voltage power supply on the side, and we focus just on the nice, cute uh, soft Mm -hmm. actuator. And, and we should be a little more honest about the, the complete system.
0: I like this point. Uh, may I ask you why do you think we call, I think this is also a question, even the soft robotics conference, we have one guest say, let's call soft machines or soft system conferences. So I'm curious to ask you, why do you think this kind of maybe, uh, I don't know, it could be misleading. I don't know, I don't know if it's intentional or not intentional, but why we call them soft robots if, if they are soft system or soft machine? Do you think it's just a big deal you think it could affect in, um and how the public perceive it or maybe junior researcher and student perceive it
1: i i don't think it's really purposeful misleading mm. of the, the public or the funding agencies but there's a, a a natural sense of trying to show the perspective of what we could do and so i think it's been a bit easy to call a soft machine a, a soft robot. The distinction is really not clear. There is no hard definition of what a robot is. It is, mm-hmm. is an industrial robot that, that, that welds a car. Everybody agrees it's a robot, uh, but we don't, it's probably been pre-programmed to do a specific task. Uh, soft robots are, are, are perhaps a bit different because now we have soft materials. And so they can deform. And so we get the so-called morphological computation, which I don't really like the term. But, but you, you do have a lot, you, you, there's a huge benefit to having soft materials for the soft machine or soft robots. And it's a convenient, I think, shortcut for everybody to just call everything a soft robot and not have to argue, is it smart, not smart, or, or, or it's dumb right now, but could easily be made smart by adding a, a microcontroller somewhere.
0: Yeah. Great, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you about the challenges you face uh, in uh, the research. Maybe something still very challenging, and also for for soft robotics field in general. And what could be the the crucial technological roadblocks we still face, maybe in short term and long term? So for your research, firstly, if you can share with us, and also with a broad perspective for soft, soft robotics field.
1: Well, I think integration is a big challenge. So if we really want to make a, a soft robot and not a soft machine, we have to integrate sensing, actuation, control, and energy storage. And that's, that, that, that's difficult
0: yeah.
1: uh, to, to do, uh, especially if we want things to be really stretchable. There's stretchable batteries, but they're still in their infancy. Um, and stretchable logic, well, there, unless so we could use silicon chips, I mean, then we could make rigid islands, but that's, the, the, then that works great. Uh, but if you really want a completely soft machine, the only a few labs, for instance, Jonathan Rossiter at, at Bristol, have really made soft machines that actually have some logic on board where there's a sensor and, and, uh, and, and computation and some simple level is done using uh, soft logic. So I think integration is a challenge. And then also probably a challenge is having different fields working together efficiently. I mean, this is done quite widely in industry. I think it's perhaps an academic problem that that we like to work in our own little lab in our little corner. Uh, But but if I come back to the haptics and the wearables again, there you have to deal between people who understand human physiology, um, human diseases, and people who design soft actuators and soft sensors. And there's... uh, the usual challenges of cross-field collaboration.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for example, for John Soriso, I think, uh, um, I don't know if you think about maybe how we can design microcontroller from soft material. You think Moore's law here for soft material, how can be adapted or maybe we can change it? Have you ever think about that, how we can design and instead, for example, when you use rigid microcontroller and soft material, do you think sometimes we have to design soft microcontroller, for example?
1: Uh, that that that's a very interesting design question. Is can we, you know, when you buy a a square centimeter silicon chip, you, you get a billion transistors. Yeah. Pretty astounding that you know the, the 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 computation you can do with a billion transistors is pretty amazing. So there has to be a super good reason for making soft logic when you can have a, a chip that has that kind of computation power. Mm-hmm. So uh, for now, what's been done is more proof of concept, showing that you could. If you're clever and willing to make some compromises have all soft logic um, and then imagine for instance robots that have or salamander artificial salamander that have different gates they can they can walk they can trot they can they can gallop and and how that gate changes depends on some sensor and then that that locally changes the the, the feedback loop um, it's nice but i i i think in the long run we're going to figure out how to embed Hard pieces in soft robots and rely on more conventional silicon electronics.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. So we also a question from uh, the audience: uh, How we can embed emotion and what is really intelligent uh, material? How we call this material as intelligent or smart? The criteria and also ha- how we can embed emotion. Do you think there's something visible to have it in the material?
1: So those are two very different questions. So first of all, I would claim materials are not smart. Materials are not intelligent intelligence requires some rather high level cognitive feats. You, you have to sense something, you have to remember it, you have to ideally be able to learn from it, and then you have to act on the world. So I can imagine a smart or intelligent soft robot or an intelligent robot, no problem, but, but, but not an intelligent material. We, we, we tend to call some of our materials intelligent because they have very limited uh, stimuli response functions. But you know, basically, you dip it in a different pH, or shine some light on it, or put a voltage on it, and it responds. I, I, I don't call that intelligent, um, no more than I call an electric motor intelligent, because it turns when I put a voltage on it. Um, uh-huh. So, so I, I think it's really the entire system that becomes intelligent. The, the, the perhaps interesting side note is, for instance, we make these grippers, and the grippers have trivial control, it's on off, because they're soft and so they automatically conform to the shape. If I put a bell pepper, if I put uh, an onion, or if I put a piece of broccoli, the gripper grabs them all and it adapts perfectly to the shape because that's all it can do. It's just a soft material, it's attracted and it gets pulled together. So somewhere from the outside, it it sort of could look intelligent because you say, oh, this gripper has perfectly adapted to all the different objects. But if you look at it, it's just, it's just, you know, the material that 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 it can't do anything else. It's not like it can take any shape in the world. It can only take the shape of the object it's trying to grab. So well, you can debate if that's really intelligent or not. Mm-hmm. And then to your emotion question, I, 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 well, I think humans have evolved to be extremely sensitive to the emotional state of other humans. So I mean, if I just draw a smiley face on, on a post-it, immediately, we feel that that's a happy one. And eh? if I put a sad smiley face, well, then everybody knows it's sad. And so mm-hmm. it's been used for a long time in robotics to, to fool people to think that the robot was had some kind of emotions. All you need is basically eyes and eyebrows that can move up and down. And, and you have a robot that can look angry or happy or, or surprised. So I, I think it's going to be the same for soft robots, where we will use similar cues to to make a robot shrug its shoulders or just smile slightly, and, 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 and we're so easily tricked to, mm-hmm. to feel an emotional response.
0: Yeah. But I think that's also a really exemplary. But I think also question here about how the material itself can have its unique emotion. Because in robot's example, I know it's still too early to that, but um, just express, the expression that you feel or triggered by certain cues. But do you think the material itself can have uh, an emotion, not to express it in a way or fake it uh, no, yeah, that's uh,
1: no i, I don't that. think it can uh mm-hmm. the same way i claim the material can't be intelligent it also can't have emotions
0: yeah yeah and uh, there's also a question from god what makes a soft material viable to be used uh, as a manufacturing material for software mm. is it better functionality or easy manufacturing
1: uh that's a good question it brings us also to the 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 lack, relative lack of of commercial soft uh, actuators and soft robots. Um, Well, I think the questions are very much tied that what today is an easy material to manufacture, or today rather, I'm sorry, what today is a hard material to manufacture could be an easy material to manufacture tomorrow if 3M wants to spend a few tens of millions of dollars on developing a fabrication process for it. Um, So But there is a bit also of a chicken and egg problem that that the fabrication processes for making soft machines are not very well established. And so there's a significant development effort from any company who wants to make one. Uh, The the notable and courageous example is Danfoss Polypower. They they tried to solve this chicken and egg problem by just saying, we're going to make materials for dielectric elastomer actuators. Um, And then people will be able to say that you know, they'd be able to make actuators because they they can't complain anymore that there's no material. They can just go and buy kilometers of the material if they want to. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that didn't work. But I I think that that was a a, a nice attempt at saying, we're going to make the material and somebody can then buy it. Right now, I think we're rather in the opposite state of saying companies quite a few companies are looking at soft actuators. And then Mm -hmm. in each case, they have to figure out how they're going to manufacture it.
0: Yeah. I think this is a really good point. And I think it was just also a question related to what could be, a, um, how we can have this a translation from soft robotics to industry. And sometimes it's not so challenging. Is it because of uh, the manufacturing process again, or modeling of soft robot? And where do you think this breakthrough is missing? If we speak about what you said.
1: Well, I think what's missing is a compelling use case. Mm. Uh, to, to, uh, people will only use... New technology and new actuators if they're either vastly cheaper or notably better than what exists. And today, I mean, electromagnetic motors are, 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 are work so well. Um, mm-hmm. Or piezo motors work so well that I, I think it's difficult for companies to see where it's worthwhile to make a soft actuator instead. So you know, there's people are talking about sort of haptic interfaces for cars or, 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 or much more energy efficient valves or um, uh, actuators for, for, for humanoid robotics, there, there are certainly applications where uh, soft actuators um, c- are, are interesting. Uh, the, the, the commercial ones today, I think are mostly pneumatic. So for instance, there's soft robotics. They have this, that nice uh, four fingered gripper that, that grips um, that they, that's used for in the food industry. There are several companies actually that make grippers aimed at the food and delicate uh, topics, uh, delicate um, object industry which are pneumatic and there it's relatively easy because you're just molding silicones uh, mm-hmm. but but to use active materials requires a lot more development and i think we just don't know why we want them yet
0: mm-hmm. i think so also if we speak as an example of the food industry do you think that active material could have maybe better chances in this application specifically if you can well, yeah, us- actually
1: i think that is a great industry because it's it's, it's one where we, you deal with typically very, you don't have the same shape all the time. You're, you're, you're trying to pick up an object, uh, say an apple, or you're trying to pick, pick a strawberry um, off a strawberry plant and you're dealing with a strawberry that's different every time. And so mm-hmm. that's a task that humans are fantastic at. And at some point we should be able to, to get a, a robotic system to do that. And there, there I think there's, a, there's actually a bright future for robotics, for food handling, for fruit picking. Um, and, and you need the softness. And so there's a, there's a good case for it, yes.
0: No, yeah, I think this is a real excellent point. We speak about how we can have this generic design that fits this example. This really excellent point, yeah. So uh, I think also about the question here because we're closing the end of your question. Uh, the first one what could be, you think, maybe something uh, you struggled with in, in your research? You see, maybe the direction you thought would work out very well, but in a result, prove something. Wasn't expected, that was interesting for you.
1: Well, we spent 10 years figuring, well, finally getting a dielectric elastomer actuator that was mm. able to stretch uh, heart cells for rats. So we 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 for a long time were very excited about using dielectric elastomer actuators for mechanotransduction studies. So we, we know that most cells in our body respond to periodic mechanical strain or just you know, our, our heart beats uh, roughly once a second and and and, and how it how it grows or how our muscles grow depend very much on the mechanical strain that they feel. And so we, 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 we worked with six different partners at different university hospitals on how we can use our, our, our devices to stretch cells. And it took 10 years until we finally got something that, that worked. And it was just such a huge effort because figuring out how to make dielectric elastomer actuators compatible with biological tissue and proving that there is no effect of the high voltage and, 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 and proving that everything we see is purely mechanical, I, I completely underestimated how difficult a task that was. That took two PhD students and, and a postdoc to finally get that to work. And at the end, I'm not sure that we have something that's better than using a voice coil or some other actuation scheme.
0: That's very interesting. And maybe because Bibi is um, still listening to you. Sometimes it's frustrating when you ha- have this ideas and it takes a lo- long time to prove it. So for you, how, how you overcome this kind of frustration or just long time that you have this idea and, and you're not sure if it work after this year or not. How, how we deal with that?
1: It's not so much frustration as a feeling of responsibility for the PhD student who's working on it. Mm-hmm. And you wanna make sure that you're giving your students uh, a, a, an interesting, challenging task, but not an impossible task. And, you need to, and of course, part of doing a PhD is, is is learning how to do independent science, learning how to do a literature review, learning how to run experiments, how to analyze data. But you also want, at the end, that that, that the student has some really cool results to publish and um, and, and and can use for his next position. So, um, so so the the frustration is a bit there of of, of feeling that I miss judged how difficult the problem was and that somebody else then has to sort it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we have a few questions here. What could be crazy ideas sometimes you think about in uh, in your work? Do you have any crazy ideas about designing something completely new? Any ideas you have in mind is still wild? and.
1: Well, they're not really wild. We, we, we think they're well, we have a couple, but so some are with partners, so they're, they're, they're harder to discuss. Others are just that we really want to make an exoskeleton. So mm-hmm. a, a soft exoskeleton that allows either people to, to lift heavy things and not be tired or to allow elderly people to, to, to live a normal life. Or in my case, I just want something that's going to allow me to ski as fast as my kids.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the, the, that, that's definitely something that, that you can imagine. If, if, if you look at the energy density of these soft actuators, if you can solve the integration, I would love to have a suit I put on and allows me to then, to then go ski all day and, and, and overtake my kids.
0: Yeah, that's great, yeah. Also question here about um, the fatigue in the, in the material or how we can make sure the material we have is reproducible if we speak about industry application. How do you see the problem If that? We have to do research and make sure this material is, is fatigue resistant or after a number of cycles of time is still functioning. How do you see this um, issue in the field? Is it well understood or maybe well de- uh, handled? How this material could uh, survive, for example?
1: Oh, that's indeed an important question for translating to industry. Um, I, I think it's very much material dependent. So we work a lot with silicones. And I'm going to claim that for silicones, those are pretty mature, well understood materials. And fatigue is, 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 is under pretty good control. Yeah. Um, if you have a, a much newer material, that you've, you've just been developed in the lab, then there's probably quite a bit more work to be done to, to prove lifetime. And those are difficult accelerated aging studies because you have to look at humidity, lifetime, high electric fields, or a high number of cycles, and then extract, figure out your activation energies and extrapolate back to what you think the lifetime would be under normal use conditions. Uh, mm-hmm. But somewhere also I'd say it's not really a university lab's problem because that's something that industry is better set up to do than us
0: yeah 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 indeed so we have a question here about first of all how we can enable more uh, intellectual inclusive culture around competitive idea and we see that in academia sometimes it's hard to get funding and grants for certain project or maybe yeah ideas outside the mainstream and uh, how do you see these challenges or maybe uh, do you think uh, that the community we are intellectually inclusive? That we have this diversity and inclusion in terms of ideas, or we have to make effort on that?
1: Well, that, that, that's an important question. Um, certainly, efforts could be made uh, or should be made. Um, and, and there's also the, you can also wonder about peer review and especially peer review for for grant proposals. How, how that works and if it encourages new ideas or encourages people who have. Uh, nice CVs. Um, I I think we're lucky with soft materials and soft robots, Mm -hmm. that a lot of it can be done with equipment that you can rent. So if you go to a makerspace, you can have fantastic 3D printers, you can mold silicone. Um, There's a lot of open source designs out there for power supplies. And so I think a partial answer to your question is that people can make their soft robots or soft actuators without having to have uh, the, the university resources. Yeah. And that allows more people to, to explore it. And you, you see this when you go to some of the, the haptics conferences that some labs, for sort instance, of friends like me are very lucky. We have very nice resources. We can make very finely engineered devices. Other people show up with brilliant ideas that they just 3D printed. And y- you can see it's a really clever idea, um, even though it's not, aesthetically complete or, or the modeling is not as pushed uh, or as developed as it, as it could be.
0: Yeah, that's excellent point, yeah. Thank you for doing that, yeah. And there's also a question here from the audience about uh, When you review the most prestigious journal like Science and Nature, what are the, some of the things that you look for that lead you to accept or reject the paper?
1: Well, in those journals, I think you're mostly looking for a novelty. Mm -hmm. you're not looking for something that's necessarily useful but you're looking for a a new idea that hasn't been seen before and you're looking for experimental validation uh, that the 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 mechanism is understood and and that therefore the use could be foreseen and you're also looking i think for sort of a high degree of polish that 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 the the experiments are in can't be contested Mm
0: and there's also another question what does it take to be a successful scientist
1: Uh, That's a tough question. In my case, I would say a a lot of luck. I was very fortunate many times to have help from people who didn't have to help me, but very kindly did help me, and I I, I thank them here. Um, uh, Dedication, perseverance, uh, hard work, and uh, in my case, being very lucky also to have an excellent team.
0: Do you think ego is important for the researcher?
1: Yes, but one has to be a bit careful. So the, 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 the challenging thing with ego is you're, you're making a grant proposal or you're going to do a four-year PhD. You have to believe there's a long-term value to that work and that you're doing it sort of the right way. If, if, you, if, you're, if you're perpetually in doubt, you're never going to be able to make progress on something like that's so somewhere you have to take a risk and, and sort of believe in yourself and, and, and go for it. At the same time, the ego can be very destructive to people around us and get in the way of sharing or, or just get in the way of, of, of collaborations. And so there has to be ego, but there has to be respect for colleagues and seeking collaborations and therefore a balance.
0: Yeah. And which book inspired you?
1: Books that inspired me. Well, I think so. so there, actually, there are two books that, that I like very much that, that, that deal with evolution and creationism. Uh, one is Bully for Brontosaurus uh, by, by Stephen Jay Gould, and the other is The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. They, mm. they sort of opened my eyes to how we should think about uh, how we ended up with, with, with our bodies and our minds uh, over billions of years.
0: Sounds interesting, yeah. So do you have any final words you would like to say for the softball community or student listening to you? Any final words?
1: Well, I really want to thank my lab members, current and past, because I'm in this very lucky situation where where I have a team of 20 people who are coming up with clever ideas, developing new ways of making things, who listen to me, but then go and do something different. And it's been super fun to work with them. And the whole soft robotics field is super exciting because it's young, it's still growing. You can see there's potential and it's not yet realized. And so it's a very exciting place to be.
0: Thanks so much for this enjoyable and thoughtful discussion. And uh, it's such a honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Well, thank
1: you for making the podcast. It's really great for the community that you've done this. Thank you very much, Marwa.
0: Thank you. Thank you.